This is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime. Because this is hell and great fortunes are being made right now off of crimes against humanity. Profiteering from crimes like poverty, hunger, malnutrition, land dispossession, and inequality. International agencies like the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, and World Trade Organization are promising poorer and more vulnerable nations debt relief in exchange for opening their agricultural sectors to foreign markets and reorienting food production towards exports instead of focusing on the domestic market and feeding its own people. Of course, when farms are prioritizing production for the globalized agriculture sector, That means locals become more dependent on imported food. The problem is during times of crisis, you know, like a pandemic or climate change or both at the same time, those imports can be disrupted, leaving the people without farms producing the food they need to eat. All of those challenges multiply when you are a small-scale farmer who does not depend on the more formal market that is imposed by the World Bank, IMF, WTO, as well as corporate-friendly local leadership. And as small-scale farming is dominated by women who still suffer from patriarchy, it is worst for vulnerable mothers and their children. On top of all of that, the demands of the global food market contributes mightily to low wages, abuse, and unsafe work conditions, conditions that have only worsened under COVID-19. But what do you expect when neoliberalism is implemented by those international agencies fulfilling the desires of the already wealthy instead of doing what's best for the most vulnerable. Today, we will be discussing how this all plays out in North Africa as well as the Middle East, but in North Africa especially, from Mauritania to Egypt, and how food sovereignty advocates may be finding opportunity in crisis. When we speak with Sylvia Kay, co-author and Hamza Hamushen, editor of the report, the Transnational Institute report, towards a just recovery from the COVID-19 crisis, the urgent struggle for food sovereignty in North Africa, which you can find at tni.org. Sylvia is project officer at the Transnational Institute, and Hamza is the program coordinator for North Africa. You can follow TNI on Twitter at TN Institute. Sylvia is a political scientist who has written various studies and policy briefs for TNI on land and water grabbing, the role of public policy in rural development, and different models of agricultural investment. She is the lead author of an official European Parliament commissioned to study on land grabbing in Europe, and her work has appeared in peer-reviewed academic journals, including the Journal of Peasant Studies. She has over two years of experience of direct engagement with the Committee on World Food Security in Rome, where she participated in the negotiations on the principles on responsible investment in agriculture and food systems. You can follow Sylvia on Twitter at Sylvia K, K-A-Y-T-N-I. That's Sylvia K-T-N-I. Hamza is a London-based Algerian researcher, activist, commentator, and a founding member of the Algeria Solidarity Campaign and Environmental Justice North Africa. He previously worked for War on Want, Global Justice Now, and Platform London on issues of extractivism, resources, 
land and food sovereignty, as well as climate, environmental, and trade justice. He is the author, editor of the 2017 book, The Struggle for Energy Democracy in the Maghreb, and the 2015 work, The Coming Revolution to North Africa, The Struggle for Climate Justice. You can follow Hamza on Twitter at Ben Tomert, that is B-E-N-T-O-U-M-E-R-T. This report was made in collaboration with Rosa Luxemburg Steiftung and the North Africa Network for Food Sovereignty. You can find out more about the North African Network for Food Sovereignty at Syada.org. That's S-I-Y-A-D-A.org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Litka. Jess, it's been a couple of weeks. How have you been? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm a little tired this morning. Uh, I went I went and saw Reagan Youth last night, which is fun. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where was that? Uh, the Beat Kitchen in Roscoe Village. Yeah, I saw a whole bunch of people were going to go see them last night. Now, yeah. A whole bunch of people were posting about it. So when did you get get home from that? That wasn't crazy, like 1230. But how was the show? It was fun. It was kind of mellow for a punk show, I thought. <laughs> 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 That's like the not the term that I was thinking that you're going to say for a punk show. Any plans for this week? Um, nothing, nothing in particular. Not right now. My week, actually, well, I've been lousy. With my apologies to everyone, I was out sick all of last week with my most recent bout of the intestinal infection known as diverticulitis. Luckily, I am down to only one or two flare-ups a year, and they hadn't lessened in severity until a week ago at this very moment when I was in too much pain to walk the one block here to our studio to sit up for an hour and a half and talk to a microphone. But before all of that happened, a couple of listeners, Karen and Anth, who live in Colorado Springs, a bastion of Christian conservatism, they were visiting Chicago. They contacted me, and we actually hung out in public, outdoors, doing our best to distance ourselves socially and kind of masked in that it is difficult to drink a beer through a mask. Not only that, it tastes awful. Luckily, when drinking in public, it's safe to take off your mask, just like when eating. Who knew food and beer could give you temporary immunity? At least that's what I assume, judging by government guidelines that state it is totally fine to take off your mask while eating or drinking in public. All that said... As we are still in the midst of the pandemic, we are not holding our weekly meet and greet. This is hell office hours, which is really more of a drink and think. And we've had to cancel our last two anniversary and listener appreciation parties. However, if you are passing through the Chicago area, email me at chuck at com, just like Karen and Anth did. And maybe we can figure out a safe outdoor space to hang out. Also, yesterday was my birthday, which I'll tell you more about following our conversation with Sylvia and Hamza. But more importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? The question from hell is, what is Bill Gates going to do with 269,000 acres of U.S. farmland? (laughs) (laughs) I don't even want to think about it. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. Again, what is Bill Gates going to do with 269,000 acres of U.S. farmland? You can leave your message or your response at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we must have your response by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure 
is possibly something called the hangover stack. Food writer Katie Thornton posted the loveindublin.com story looking to cure your hangover. This Dublin cafe has just the right thing for it. Thornton writes, dying of a hangover? Sometimes you can't just wait for the bed to swallow you up. You've just got to suck it up and refuel. Dublin's One Society Cafe on Gardner Street has the answer with their self-proclaimed hangover stack. This pancake stack may be a little unconventional, but we trust them when they say it's going to cure you. It consists of vanilla pancakes topped with crispy bacon, Tabasco, ricotta, a fried egg, and drizzled in the classic maple syrup. Sounds absolutely divine. Wash it down with some coffee and loads of water and you're good to go. Which means food writer Katie Thornton of Love in Dublin has not actually eaten the supposed hangover here. So she and we have no idea if the hangover stack actually cures a hangover. Alleged journalist Katie simply trusts the people who profit from selling it, which is an obvious conflict of interest. That makes this week's hangover cure vanilla pancakes topped with crispy bacon, Tabasco, ricotta, a fried egg, and drizzled in maple syrup. Maybe. Who knows? Because clearly intrepid reporter Katie... Uh, Katie Thornton does not. <laughs> so we don't even know what this week's hangover cure is. Katie wouldn't figure it out, and we can't figure it out. We are looking for new volunteer board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you're interested in running the board, as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuck at com. If you'd like to join us here on This Is Hell, email me again, chuck at com. We're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, with shows beginning at 10 a.m. Monday through Friday. However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work around your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. This position does come with a modest stipend, to, so keep that in mind as well. We actually we actually pay people. If you are interested in becoming a board operator, again, email me at chuck at thisishell.com coming up the globalized industrial agriculture food distribution system makes the lives of the poor even more vulnerable while enriching the already wealthy we will have this week in rotten history some of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what is bill gates going to do with 269,000 acres of u.s farmland and we'll tell you what happened on the past two patreon podcasts including one where i declare war on all birthdays not just my own yeah, despite being laid up all week, I was actually able to drag myself in here for a Patreon monologue this past Friday. So Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell have not missed a beat. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell in North Africa and developing economies around the world. The World Bank, IMF, and WTO are insisting that debtor nations globalize their agricultural sector and focus its food production on the export market. This has left many countries food insecure, leading to malnutrition while exacerbating inequality and poverty, which always affect women and their children the most. Here to tell us about the campaign for food sovereignty and neoliberalism's prioritizing of profits over people while making the already rich wealthier and the already poor much worse off. Sylvia Kay is co-author, and Hamza Hamushan is editor of the Transnational Institute Report Towards a Just Recovery from the COVID-19 Crisis, The Urgent Struggle for Food Sovereignty in North Africa, which you can find at TNI.org. First, welcome to This Is Hell, Sylvia. Hi. Hi, Chuck. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. And Hamza, welcome to This Is Hell as well. 
Great to be here. Hello, Chuck. So let's start with you, Sylvia. Uh, the report starts with a couple of proverbs. and I, I, Well, yeah, yeah, let's start with you. Uh, the report starts with a couple of proverbs from Egypt. Bread and olives make a house solid. And from Morocco, bread and water eliminate a heart's sorrow. Those are followed by a statement from a Tunisian farmer to the Working Group for Food Sovereignty in Tunisia, which is, to be your own master, you must eat what your pick axe produces. And Hamza, after I ask this question to Sylvia, if you want to chime in on any of these uh, questions, or uh, same thing with you, Silva, Sylvia, if I ask Hamza a question, please chime in if you feel like. Uh, so, Sylvia, we have had many conversations on our show where the guests bring up our current problematic human relationship with nature and its contribution to climate change. Here in the States, those relationships vary from the industrial agriculture monocrop model to indigenous subsistence practices. How would you describe the North African relationship with nature? Is it unique in any way that may affect the way it views agriculture and food sovereignty? Yeah, great question, Chuck. And I'm really glad that you picked out those proverbs and, and that you like them because we wanted to include them because we just found them so evocative and so poetic because they really speak to the kind of central role that um, food really plays in the culture in North Africa. And particularly bread has been a very kind of um, important kind of flashpoint um, in, the, in the sort of social history of, of North Africa. I mean, many uprisings are sometimes referred to even as bread, bread uprisings or people um, have been referred to as bread martyrs because um, their social uprisings in response to the, the um, poor standards of living and, and um, repressive economic measures that have been introduced they've often been triggered by by spikes in essential food items such as bread and they've been brutally repressed um, so we wanted to kind of really include those proverbs to kind of pay tribute to that social history of, of revolt and uprising and people standing up for their rights, um, but also to, to signify the importance of food to the culture and to, of course, to the economies and to the livelihoods. But um, yeah, it's it's a region that's sometimes not really seen as a as a food producing region, but there is um, you know an enormous richness in in food culture. Um, it's often lost because they're sort of, you know, viewed as a kind of monoculture in terms of their oil export and, and uh, dependency. But um, certainly food systems are, play a very important role. We're talking about peasants, we're talking about fishers, we're talking about pastoralists and nomadic and indigenous peoples. Um, so there's a huge wealth and huge richness of the food culture there that um, I hope we can get into a bit more. And Hamza, Hamza, the report states that uh, moments of generalized crisis and popular resistance in North Africa have often found expression in and been channeled through food systems. Decisions to lift subsidies and hike prices of essential food items, especially bread, have resulted in social uprisings nearly always intensively suppressed. And as Sylvia was just mentioning, you then list uprisings in Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, and Morocco from the late 70s through the mid-1980s. Hamza, is the food system as a site of uprising, is that in any way unique to North Africa? Does it happen in North Africa more than elsewhere? And if so, what is it about North Africa that makes food systems such sites of resistance? I don't think it's it's particularly unique uh, to North Africa as such. But in the context of North Africa, we've seen an intensification of struggle and resistance following spikes in food prices, 
following neoliberal austerity measures that reduce the income of people, that reduce their um, ability to access um, decent food. And, and, this is, and this is, you could say, the result of decades of neoliberal policies that have been imposed by international financial institutions, the one that you mentioned at the, at the start of the show. Uh, the World Bank, the IMF, the World Trade Organizations, and those policies um, have been adopted, or you could say have been uh, imposed on local governments. That led to impoverishment, um, and that led to those uprisings. And I think we need to understand that context because the current food systems in North Africa have been shaped by decades of those policies that intensified food dependency, that impoverished um, rural areas, that undermined small-scale food producers, people who produce food in North Africa. So did North Africa need these neoliberal agriculture policies in order to feed the people of North Africa? What you see is that, you know, that this is the kind of paradigm, right, that um, these uh, multilateral institutions, these international financial institutions, they really make the case that um, to have an efficient, modern, high tech, sort of high capitalized um, agricultural sector that will quote unquote feed the world, this means that we need to integrate um, local or domestic uh, f- agro food systems into the global market, right? And we need to rely on, on kind of international trade and international commodity markets and pursue kind of policies related to, to liberalization, to opening up, uh, to privatization of many formerly um, state or public kind of functions, to private actors, often to corporate actors, um, and that needs to be pursued through these kind of regional and bilateral free trade agreements. We've, we've seen a sort of sweep also of, uh, yeah, these kind of free trade agreements um, in recent years, particularly between the EU and North African countries. And the argument is, is yeah, that this will deliver cheaper food. It will allow states to be flexible and nimble because they can, you know, have these, um, these trading agreements. But what we really wanted to show with our report is that, you know, this is a kind of uh, illusor- illusionary kind of um, security, you know, this kind of global markets food security paradigm, because it means that um, when you become so dependent on global commodity markets, you also become dependent on the huge degree of speculation and volatility that takes place within those markets through kind of price hikes, yeah, through other kinds of Um, speculation on on the stock exchange. Um, So, you know, as soon as prices on on global markets shoot up, you know, if you're dependent then on importing um, food for your food security, you're importing that inflationary pressure. Um, And then at the same time, you're undermining kind of um, your local food systems because often small scale producers can't compete with um, often those artificially subsidized uh, food imports. So um, it's actually what we would argue to be, um, yeah, a false notion of resilience, a false notion of security. Um, and to say nothing of the fact that um, people don't then have uh, rights and agency and can't assert autonomy and um, their own visions and aspirations for the kinds of food they want to consume, 
from where, by whom, under what conditions. Um, yeah, that all becomes anonymized and outsourced to, to the global market. So we would argue very much that this hasn't delivered on its promises. And if you look at kind of metrics in relation to uh, food security and malnutrition and hunger that, that have gripped the region, um, you know, those have remained um, static, if not increasing. So um, very much we would argue that this hasn't hasn't delivered on its promise. Okay, let's see if Hamza is there again. Hamza, are you there? I am here. All I right. apologize. Uh, no, no, that, that's, that's okay. It's very difficult to get a phone call through, I understand. So uh, listen, Hamza, the report also states, you know, these uprisings in the 70s and 80s, they broke out at a time when the International Monetary Fund had been intervening through structural adjustment programs in developing countries to repair the economic situation, as they called it, following the debt crisis that imploded in the late 70s and early 80s. This led to a series of sweeping neoliberal economic reforms, including one, including in the uh, agricultural sector. This was mainly geared towards promoting export-oriented agriculture to draw in hard currency in order to help states meet their international debt obligations. So if that was the intent, Hamza, did it work? Is North Africa free from debt obligations that neoliberalism was supposed to address? Not at all. In fact, uh, the debt burden has amplified, especially for countries like Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, and, and Mauritania. Um, so th that, that those solutions promoted by those international financial institutions have not delivered on their promises at all. And just to come back to what I was saying about you know the 70s and 80s, that um, wave of neoliberal reforms being and dictates being imposed from outside, we need to understand those as part of you could say a neoliberal counter-revolution, trying to um, undermine or you could say kill those liberatory or radical reform that have been unle unleashed by the decolonization period. Uh, so most of the countries in North Africa have been colonized till the 50s and 60s. And to a certain degree, in the 60s and 70s, there have been some experiences uh, for radical reform, for a rupture from you know, that imperialist and capitalist system. But with the 80s, there was this wave to try to undermine all of this and to maintain the global world order where countries like in the global south in North Africa um, are maintained in a subordinate position as a market for industrialized economy and as a provider of cheap uh, natural resources and cheap labor. So it is within this context that we need to understand those, that neoliberal onslaught uh, in order to keep countries like Tunisia and Morocco and Egypt as provider of cheap, and Algeria as well, of cheap natural resources, including cheap agricultural products. And there have been waves uh, since then. It's not just the 70s and 80s. We could, we, we could um, fast forward a little bit to what's happening right now in Tunisia. Uh, Tunisia witnessed a revolution in 2010-2011, but what, what followed in, in that decade from 2011 till now was, again, uh, a neoliberal counter-revolution, financial, uh, international financial institutions intervening to impose an economic agenda 
to privatize the economy, to open up those economies for, in, uh, for the global north in order to continue the plunder in the page of natural resources at the expense of people right now. Till now, Tunisians are still protesting. Till now, there are uprisings for food. So um, to answer, to come back to your question, has it resolved the economic or the debt crisis in these countries? No, it has expanded it. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's the part that just always amazes me about all these structural structural adjustment programs that the World Bank IMF impose. Uh, that they they say this is going to take care of your debt, and then you go back to this country to see what's happened. For instance, with Greece, they're in more debt now than they were before, and they said that this is the only way you could get out of debt. So it always just boggles my mind. And let's get back to just a little. Let's you know go up to today, but a little bit before today. Sylvia, the report states the health and economic crisis exacerbated by the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic has not spared North Africa. Prior to the pandemic, Sylvia, what were the health and economic crises that North Africa was already facing? Well, I mean, um, as our North Africa program coordinator, I will let Hamza perhaps um, complete some of the statistics, but you're looking at a region which already prior to the pandemic, 50 million people were undernourished. So there were, there's already a huge um, problem related to food insecurity in the region. You're talking about countries where, um, generally speaking, very high levels of unemployment, also because of the their expanding and growing populations, many of them. So there's a huge share of, of younger people, people under 30, little job creation, job opportunities. We're seeing many, many, um, what's often not appreciated, we talk about, um, so we're, I'm based in the Netherlands, so have a bit more of a European perspective, but often in the European press, it's often highlighted the kind of waves of migration from North Africa to Europe, particularly actually to work in the agricultural sector in, in Europe. But what's often not appreciated is, is the degree to of internal migration within the region as well. Um, even yeah, within countries within the region, as people move, younger people in particular, men in particular, move from the countryside to the city, um, just because of the the sort of yeah dire need for 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 jobs and for economic um, an economic outlook. So yeah, you're talking about a region that's um, yeah hugely affected by um, uh, economic inequality by uh, hunger, like I said, undernourishment, um, and uneven developments between rural and urban areas, and um, certainly between North Africa and uh, more prosperous regions such as Europe, for example. And when it comes to the pandemic, Hamza, the report states that economic lockdowns and emergency public health measures were implemented across the region in 2020 and 2021. The direct consequences of these were especially dire for small-scale food producers, agricultural laborers, fisher folk, and small-scale pastoralists. Market closures prevented people from selling products and buying necessary production inputs, driving down their incomes. At the same time, major agribusiness corporations benefited from state measures, including injections of public funds in the form of tax breaks, fiscal incentives, technical support, and direct financial aid. Hamza, to you, what explains why those kinds of benefits, tax breaks, uh, fiscal incentives, technical support, and direct financial aid, why were they given to major agribusiness corporations and not offered to small-scale producers? 
But in two words, Chuck, it is disaster capitalism. Um, in times of crisis, not just in North Africa, but globally, uh, we've seen that you know several times since the 2008-2009 crisis in the global north, he, here in Europe and the, and the US. And the, the current pandemic, we see who always profits from this crisis. It's always the powerful. It's always the ruling classes trying to not just maintain the status quo um, in order to not threaten their own profits, but to, to try and make profits from those crises. And that's what, what happened in, in the North African context. A lot of agribusiness companies and corporations benefited, benefited from state's help, while the small-scale food producers, the working poor, uh, the working people in North Africa went without income. Uh, something that, that is worth mentioning, I think, for your listeners is the North African economies, most of them are based on the informal sector. So, for example, Algeria, most of the working force, 50% of the working force uh, works in the informal sector. Tunisia and Morocco is much more, is around 60 to 70%. And the same thing in Egypt is much more. Um, so in the times of pandemic, uh, all of these informal jobs disappeared causing huge economic meltdown. We, have, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs um, of layoffs. Uh, and you can imagine how much inequality is exacerbated by that, how much impoverishment is, is exacerbated by, uh, by this. And, and I think j just to go back a little bit to what, what, what Silvia was saying around the context before, before the pandemic, um, something that I think maybe your listeners are aware of is that the region since 2010, 2011 has been witnessing huge mass uprisings. Um, we could call them revolutions uh, from Tunisia, what, what we call the Arab Spring, from Tunisia, Morocco, Egypt, Algeria, uh, and other countries in the region. These are not just political uprisings against some authoritarian political elites. Yes, it is part part of the explanation, but we need to think about the economic motifs, the economic roots of those uprisings, which lie at the, at the heart of this, lies the, the neoliberal policies uh, dictated by international financial institutions, by global capital, and implemented by domestic ruling classes. We shouldn't forget that the domestic ruling classes are benefiting from that system. And Sylvia, the report also states that it is no coincidence that in 2010-2011, Tunisian uprising was sparked off in impoverished agricultural areas where speculative capital and agribusiness profiteered. Neither was it a minor detail that the event that sparked the Arab uprisings was the self-immolation of the street fruit vendor, Mohamed Bouazi. So what is missed, Sylvia, in our understanding of the very first uprising of the Arab Spring and the Arab Spring more generally? when it is not recognized that it is an outcome of neoliberal global agrarian and agricultural policies. Because in the U.S. media, 
food shortages were mentioned, but not as prominently as issues like a downturn in the economy or government corruption or a sudden desire for democracy or the impact of social media, which some were saying actually caused the Arab Spring. So, Sylvia, what is missed when we don't view it as an uprising against, at that time, 30 years of neoliberal agricultural policies? Yeah, I think there's a... We're missing a bit the kind of broader context and the historical roots, um, as, as was also mentioned um, earlier in the program. You know, um, it's often not appreciated. I don't think that um, many of these countries are, are, you know, at root still agrarian societies. You know, obviously, like I said, there's rapid urbanization, uh, rapid internal migration from um, the countryside to the city, but um, the importance really of um, food production and uh, the salience of that to, to households, you know, because of the, the still levels of inequality and, and poverty and precarity in the region, you know, um, household budgets are hugely sensitive when there's um, price hikes in essential um, items, particularly, like I said earlier, bread, you know, so these are, but these are kind of, yeah, these are sparks, these are triggers, but um, they are, they are emblematic um, and they become um, an accelerant really for, for, for much more deep-rooted structural systemic um, questions around the de denial of, you know, popular sovereignty, um, people, you know, not being able to, to claim and assert kind of basic rights. Um, so, you know, food, food and other kind of essential items become kind of flashpoints around this. Um, and often I think, yeah, they become, um, that is sometimes not appreciated to the extent to which um, those, those uh, items like bread and other kind of essential commodities are really, um, like I said, emblematic of the role that uh, food and food cultures uh, play in the region. So I think, I think that they, they are identified as triggers and accelerants, but, but not really within the broader context of, yeah, food production and the structural policies and the implication of global market actors, corporate actors, uh, like I said, free trade agreements, you know, that is often not uh, brought to the fore, this kind of whole legacy of um, colonialism, imperialism, um, and now exacerbated on top of that through neoliberal uh, measures. We are speaking with Sylvia Kay and Hamza Hamushen of the Transnational Institute. They're on to talk about the report Towards a Just Recovery from the COVID-19 Crisis, the Urgent Struggle for Food Sovereignty in North, Amer North Africa, which you can find at TNI.org. And you can follow the Transnational Institute on Twitter at TNInstitute. <clears throat> as uh, uh, defined by the uh, Hamza, as defined by the International Farmers Organization, La Via Campesina, uh, food sovereignty is the right of peoples to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agricultural systems. How could North Africa, how could have North Africa responded differently to the pandemic, to this crisis, if North Africans already were enjoying food sovereignty? Is this question to me, Chuck? Yes, sir. Ah, yeah, sorry. Um, I, th I think there are some statistics that we need to put on the table here so the listeners would understand the extent of 
food dependency, of food insecurity, and complete lack of sovereignty uh, on the food systems in the North African, on the Arab region in, in general. So we have more than 50% of the calories consumed daily in the Arab regions are from imported food. Uh, 65% of the wheat consumption is imported. We have nine Arab countries, including the countries in North Africa, produce only around a fifth of the grain their populations need. And it is a population that consume um, a lot of grains. This is, this is the basic food staple uh, in, in the North African region. And so you have this huge dependency on importing the food that you eat. And at the same time, another dependency, and I would call it another vulnerability, to international markets, for, to exporting products that you don't eat yourself, that other people need, like the European Union. And here we are talking about uh, oranges, we are talking about vegetables like tomatoes, fruits like strawberries, watermelons. Uh, we are talking about flowers as well, things that go into cosmetic products like jojoba that consume a lot of water as well. So it ends up exhausting natural resources and in a way virtually exporting water from a region that is semi-arid to arid generally. So uh, in this context, you have the pandemic coming to you in, in a context of huge dependency and vulnerability, a dependency on global supply food chains, uh, uh, dependency on importing what you eat, and also a dependency to getting foreign currency by exporting the products into Europe and, and somewhere else. The pandemic comes and creates huge problems in those global supply chains. So we see already that these countries were struggling to feed their own populations. So they ended, they ended up uh, putting some uh, very strict measures in order to control the supply of certain basic foods. And it, it didn't stop there. We, we see, we also saw how the small scale food producers, the people who are um, feeding uh, people in North Africa, struggling to sell their products because markets have closed, um, because they rely also on exports. So for example, dates in Tunisia is, is one of the big products that are being exported into the European Union. And this is also shaped by colonialism. Uh, always we need to go back to colonialism. There is a continuation of those kind of policies of dispossession and, and dependency. So you don't export dates, you don't have an income. You don't have an income, you don't eat, which means poverty and, and, and hunger. Also, you have the dependency um, on international markets, not only to buy what you eat, but to get the inputs, the agricultural inputs that you need to, um, uh, for, for your land, for, um, uh, for, for farming, because we have uh, a dominant industrial agriculture that is being pushed. We need, we need fertilizers, you need chemical inputs, and those are being imported because of lack of technological development in those countries. So you, the pandemic just exacerbated and made things worse. And I think the report says, says it clearly. The pandemic did not cause this crisis. It just exacerbated it because 
the, the elements of the explosions are already there. And Sylvia mentioned the huge unemployment, the huge inequalities. People were already leaving the regions in, in, in the tens of thousands uh, a year, immigrating to Europe because, because they are seeking better livelihoods. Um, so th the solution to this is that we need a change of direction, complete change of direction from, from that food security paradigm that is being imposed on us, a food a, a paradigm that is dependent on private capital, on international market, on continuing to export what others need and importing what you need. So it, there is a kind of lopsidedness that needs to be challenged. And we feel that times of crisis, of course, they can be times of disaster capitalism where, where big capital benefits from them by entrenching their power and, and their policies of dispossession. But at the same time, they could be good opportunities, we feel, for reflecting on those paradigms, challenging those ideas, putting forward um, some other visions and other projects. And, it, and it's not like those visions and projects are lacking. And, and you mentioned the food sovereignty, which is, which is a, for me, it is a liberation. It's an emancipation project um, that is being pushed forward by millions and millions, hundreds of millions of peasants and small-scale food producers in the world. And Sylvia, the report states that the dominant food security paradigm increased vulnerability to the economic dislocation wrought by the pandemic. And the report also points out that uh, this kind of dependency on imports can lead to a decreased agricultural GDP wherever neoliberal agricultural policies seem to be in place. So, Sylvia, what does the pandemic reveal to you about the government and large scale producers claim of food security is food is is there more food security when there is food sovereignty than when the focus is on food security? Absolutely not. I mean, the pandemic has really, um, I think, put that myth to rest, at least, um, at least from our perspective, because when you see this kind of huge um, technological dependency, this huge import dependency, input uh, dependency, um, and one shouldn't forget that, particularly when we're talking about the food system, you know, the, the world food system is basically just reliant on really a handful of um, corporates, um, input providers, food retailers, uh, seed and chemical companies, you know, food processors. And um, they really control the market and they can dictate prices and um, push negative effects uh, downwards to producers and consumers and um, you know dependency on them is really um, you know is a huge source of uh, vulnerability it, it's a liability rather than a strength and um, what makes it even more complicated in the North Africa region is particularly when you have countries um, that are dependent on the export of particularly oil and, and but also gas um, for their foreign exchange earnings um, and you engage in the global marketplace on that basis, um, you, if you use that to, to secure your foreign exchange earnings, um, but then you have a kind of disruptive event like the pandemic, uh, where suddenly you can't uh, have access to the same markets or prices widely fluctuate, there's declining terms of trade, you know, you, you all of a sudden can't cover your costs anymore or become, becomes wildly more expensive. 
Um, so it's it's it has a huge disruptive effect, and um, I think it's underestimated how nimble and uh, you can be. There's there's often kind of a huge path dependency and, and structural impediments to really, like I said, changing those kind of market structures because they're dominated just by a handful of players. So um, what we really put forward in the in the report as uh, as an alternative to that kind of global commodity markets, uh, neoliberal food security paradigm is really this, this movement of food sovereignty. And it's a movement that really has also, you know, practical solutions. You know, it talks about um, the formation of, of cooperatives. It talks about the importance of what we call territorial markets or, or markets which are much more embedded, much more rooted in uh, local economies that build as much as possible on internal resources to reduce the dependency on external resources, um, aspects of self-provisioning, of course, aspects of exchange, trade, and distribution. We're not saying that there's no trade foreseen, but trade which is under different terms and, and where much more wealth can be returned and regained within the territories. Um, and, you know, markets that also rely on forms of labor-driven forms of in intensification and skill sharing. Um, so, you know, these are, are in many ways already happening. And it's how many people got through the crisis by relying on these um, social networks. I know a lot of been, has been written also in the, in the North American context about these mutual aid um, kind of groups, which um, really helps people through the crisis. We saw the same in North Africa. Um, so these are really kind of, yeah, other ways of organizing markets, um, organizing uh, societies. And uh, yeah, we really see a lot of inspiration and hope from that, particularly since it's spearheaded by an international movement for food sovereignty comprised of peasants, fishers, indigenous peoples, uh, agricultural workers, food workers, um, consumer groups, cooperatives, and many others. Um, and those are the kind of movements that uh, certainly we as TNI also want to support. Hamza, you explained that the case of Algeria, where, as you write, Algeria's food security paradigm relies on a hydrocarbon export-based model, which shows a high dependence on international markets to sell oil and gas on one hand, and on the other hand, importing what is lacking in food, especially staple products such as cereals and milk. In other words, Algeria's ability to cover the costs of its food imports is dictated by external factors, oil and food price fluctuations. Basically, the oil and gas rent finances Algeria's food dependence, creating a situation of double dependence. How could food sovereignty, Hamza, could that de-link, could that break the link between the burning of fossil fuels and agricultural production? Absolutely. I see it as one of the solutions um, on the table. Um, if we really want to break that double dependence that I described, um, we need to diversify the economy. We need an inward-looking economy, an economy that works for its, its people, especially the marginalized and the poorest. And to do this, you need a, you need a kind of not just national sovereignty, but you need also popular sovereignty on natural resources, on land, on water, on food and energy systems. So we need this kind of, um, we need to break a rupture 
with, with the extractivist model of development that relies on the export of natural resources perpetually. And with the fluctuations of the prices, uh, especially in the pandemic, we've seen that in the pandemic, the oil and gas prices went like five or six dollars uh, a barrel um, of oil. That deeply impacted Algeria's ability to buy food. So th that project of food sovereignty for us, um, at least, is not just a project that focuses on the food system. But it's a project towards, you know, social, political, and economic transformation. And Sylvia mentioned the question of trade. Uh, it, it's not about being against trade, but it's being against the current unequal and uneven terms of trade, where countries like Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco go on as the exporters um, to Europe, while importing the food they eat, the importing the technology and the industrialized products. So it needs a complete change of paradigm led by workers, by working people, by small scale farmers. It is these people who have the knowledge, who accumulated the experiences on the ground. And that transition towards a just system cannot cannot happen happen without them. And we need to have an internationalist vision as well. Uh, the change cannot happen just in Tunisia or Algeria or in, just in North Africa. It needs to happen worldwide. There needs to, we need to build strategic alliances between workers in various industries, between food workers, between fishers, pastoralists, um, and other revolutionary-minded people. To change to change that system, uh, you were mentioning Bill Gates at the at the start of of the show, Bill Gates and Melinda Foundation, um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are supporting that kind of corporate and industrial agriculture in the African continent, um, what is called Agra, the Alliance for Green Revolution in Africa, while hundreds of millions of small-scale food producers, organizations, networks, and associations are fighting that green revolution and saying this kind of corporate industrial agriculture does not resolve our problems of hunger, does not, um, is not respectful of the environment. It exhausts our natural resources. It maintains our dependency. It maintains the current economic vulnerability. So it is, it is I, I see it as a long-term struggle that needs to connect the dots with other struggles as well in other regions. So we're, we're glad that we, we are on the show to talk with them, with your North, North American audiences. Sylvia also mentioned in the report is the uh, neoliberal food production system's dependency upon genetically modified seeds. And I thought this was really fascinating. So what has the pandemic revealed about genetically modified seeds when it comes to, I hate to use this word, uh, food security in times of crisis? Are they any more or less vulnerable to crisis than traditional natural seeds? Yeah, I mean the seeds is is a real um, is is a really interesting one because um, the thing that's often not appreciated by um, when it comes to genetically modified seeds is that those seeds also come with certain patented technologies with them. So um, often they tie farmers into a whole chemical package. So 
you yes, you 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 purchase then a genetically modified seed from uh, a, a corporate seed supplier, such as for example Monsanto, that immediately ties you into then the use of a particular herbicide, use of a particular pesticide, um, and it you you um, you come to be on what is sometimes called a sort of chemical treadmill, which you can't exit from. Uh, because those those seeds are really tied into that whole package of um, other agricultural inputs, and um, you know there's even some forms of contracting where you're then not allowed. You know it even becomes criminalized. Then once you become dependent on those seeds, farmers are then criminalized for saving their own seeds and exchanging them amongst themselves. Um, and what you really lose then is so not only do you lose your autonomy, your control. You're tied into a, a chemical treadmill. Um, you also lose, you know, part of your genetic diversity because, yeah, you become dependent on this singular um, seed package. Um, and that genetic diversity, that brings a lot of resilience and robustness against uh, pests and other diseases. So um, that, that really uh, sets you on a path to greater fragility, greater precariousness, greater vulnerability. Um, and we've seen that, you know, genetically modified seeds have been um, entering the region and, and have been pushed. Um, but this is a really pernicious um, development and, and one which we, we would see as antithetical really to this um, vision of and model of food sovereignty that we were talking about. And the report quotes a past guest on our show, Walden Bellow, saying recent declarations by leaders of the FAO, that's the agriculture organization within the UN, and other multilateral or, uh, or agencies indicate that they continue to be imprisoned by a failed paradigm. And in fact, you offer many quotes in the World Bank saying that the current system must essentially stay in place. So Hamza, to what extent does North Africa or does anyone have a choice? Will we continue with normal because the World Bank and markets have so much power and we have no choice? Because this neoliberalism wasn't imposed democratically. The people of North Africa didn't vote it into power. The, the people who probably implemented it never said that they were going to actually implement uh, neoliberalism until it was. So to what extent, Hamza, do we have a choice? Are we just trapped by the World Bank and other international agencies? I think that, Chuck, uh, I think this is a difficult question. Um, but, but what I think is that the rulers of the, this world want us to believe that there is no other choice or there is no other vision or there is no other alternative except for deepening neoliberal policies, for austerity measures, for privatizing all the sectors, dispossessing people, continuing grabbing land and water to make more money, even commodifying the air. And you know, you mentioned the climate crisis at the, at the start of this show. And the current multidimensional crisis that the world sees is the result of that capitalist system that you know, dispossesses people, destroys the environment in order to accumulate profits and capital. So um, for us at least, or for, for me at least, the solution is clear. It needs to be a challenge to the current uh, capitalistic system, uh, not just in the agricultural sector, but in other sectors as well, in the oil and gas industry, in the renewables. Um, so we need to connect all these dots together. Um, 
but it is difficult it is challenging i agree with you uh and and you mentioned the the important word in there the question of democracy what do we mean by democracy do we mean the the model the bourgeois electoral model that we see in the global north or we mean much more radical forms of popular and participative democracy because the people in the region are still grappling with that question where there are a lot of revolutions and uprising to change that system so a world of economic justice cannot happen without popular democracy and this is, for me this is a, it, it cannot happen in 2 3 years people have been trying to unseat the whole ruling classes corrupt authoritarian and comprador ruling classes in the region for decades uh they succeed to a certain degree they fail to a large degree because um the revolution cannot happen just internally uh you are you're not just challenging your own ruling classes you are challenging capital you are challenging the imperialist powers you are challenging uh the tools of those imperialist powers which happen to be the IMF the world bank and the WTO so that for me maybe maybe i'm putting forward a big 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 agenda that social justice economic justice democracy in north africa cannot happen without a global change and this necessitates as i said global alliances that go beyond the national and regional to the international and this is taking shape in various struggles and would take time um but i'm still optimistic jack we have been speaking with sylvia k co-author and hamza hamushan editor of the transnational institute report towards a just recovery from the covid 19 crisis the urgent struggle for food sovereignty in north africa which you can find at tni.org and you can follow transnational institute on twitter at tn institute i have one more question for each of you and i promise we do this with every one of our guests our final question is what we call the question from hell the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response so sylvia lucky you let's start with you can the food system be reformed or must it be abolished because you know what would be the impact of ending neoliberal agricultural policies on the most vulnerable because that's who i'm most concerned about and as you point out in the report food sovereignty is a focus on the most vulnerable while food security is a focus on further enriching the already wealthy so how difficult would it be to end neoliberal uh agricultural policy and what would be the impact on the most vulnerable well we certainly need to abolish the the current corporate food regime i mean that that is um not the answer to our problems it's creating our problems and um you know what will, what would that mean i mean we're talking about really sweeping reforms i mean the the challenge is great but we're talking about you know um the fact that bill gates should not be the largest farmland owner in the us which perhaps a lot of um Uh, you don't know, but we're introduced to at the beginning of the program. Um, we're talking about the fact that we need to end kind of patented technologies on life. So I'm talking about on 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 genetic resources. Those should not be proprietary property. Should certainly not be um, 
you certainly should not be that you could be criminalized for saving and exchanging your own seeds. Um, it should, we should not have, um, you know, these, these kind of ideas of gene editing and engineering ecosystems, the fact that we think that we can fine tune and fix our way out of the ecological crisis through all these um, fancy technologies of which we don't know what the impacts will be. And we certainly uh, are worried about in whose hands that kind of data is, is controlled by. Um, and we, yeah, so we, we need to vigorously, it would mean vigorously pursuing things like antitrust uh, legislation to break up what really is an uh, oligopoly um, in many instances. Um, and it would mean really valuing and um, cherishing the people that produce our food and, and to see food very much um, as a public good, as a, as a human right. Um, it shouldn't be a source of, of profit. It certainly shouldn't be a source of speculation by um, uh, on the stock exchange. It shouldn't be profits from that shouldn't be siphoned off through offshore um, tax havens, which we see a lot of agribusiness companies uh, channeling their, their profits through. Um, so yeah, it would mean a vast uh, reorientation, but um, it would also be about acknowledging that many people actually do access their food, not through um, big food empires or, or um, the corporate food system, but they actually do access it through uh, territorial markets, peasant markets, farmers markets. Um, perhaps they've joined a, a kind of local community supported agriculture group, which is about, you know, when consumers band together to support kind of local farmers by committing to box schemes or payments up front for an agricultural season for delivery of fresh fruit and, fruit and vegetables. Um, and I think there will be a lot more joy and passion and fun in that kind of food system than, yeah, like I said, everything being delivered through corporations and, well, robots perhaps in the future. An exceptional answer to a question from Hell, Sylvia. Uh, Hamza, to what extent can all of North Africa's problems be solved with the vaccine? Speaking of technology and the West always looking for a solution within technology, can't a COVID-19 vaccine distributed to everyone within North Africa, wouldn't that solve all of North Africa's problems that it's facing from this pandemic? Definitely. Um, partly it's part of the answer. And I think that touches on an important question, which is the vaccine apartheid that we are living through right now. I live, I live in the UK. People are having a booster right now, so a third job. Um, children are being vaccinated, while people in my home country are not vaccinated. So we have less than 10% of the adult population in Algeria being vaccinated, less than 10%. And, and you could say that Algeria is one of um, the good contenders in, in the African continent. In other parts of the world, maybe it's one or less than 1%. So we are seeing huge inequality. When we talk about food uh, systems, it's the same in the health, in the global health system as well. Um, and these countries in the global south their health healthcare system is crumbling, crumbled through, again, neoliberal policies, austerity measures that have been imposed on those countries. So 
the solution is, of course, towards more equality, towards more justice, towards, I, I would say, decolonizing the systems. Because for me, I always see what's happening right now in my home country, or in North Africa, or in other parts of the world, as the continuation of some colonial projects. Um, revolution took place to challenge that colonial imperialist system, but we've seen uh, neo-colonial counter-revolution coming back. That's what happens. Counter-revolutions always come back. And they come back in the form of um, neoliberalism. So we've seen more dispossession, more impoverishments. And till now, we, are, we are still, uh, still see uprisings for popular sovereignty and, and democracy and economic justice. Um, there are some good experiences in the global south when it comes to to vaccines. Um, Cuba is, is manufacturing its own vaccines, other countries as well. Um, Algeria has signed um, some a contract with um, Sinovac to manufacture the Chinese vaccine. I think this is good news. At least it will bring some relief to the populations. Um, we've seen in Tunisia how the third wave of the pandemic caused havoc. It was really catastrophic. Tunisia is the worst country when it comes to death from uh, from uh, from uh, COVID nineteen per you know per capita. Um, so, uh, and then Tunisia is just receiving the vaccines as donations right now instead of challenging those monopolies, cha challenging intellectual property rights uh, in order. Um, to to give vaccines to all the populations in the world, we see again hoarding, monopolies, uh, entrenchments, inequality, greed, and this this needs to be challenged at all levels. Sylvia and Hamza, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show today. I really appreciate it. This is a great way to start our week, and this is a fascinating report. And again, listeners, we only skim the surface of it. Please go read the entire report, again, towards a just recovery from the COVID-19 crisis, the urgent struggle for food sovereignty in North Africa, which you can find at TNI.org. Sylvia and Hamza, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Pleasure. Thank Pleasure, Jack. Take care. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. If what you just heard from Sylvia and Hamza made you angry or anxious, if you were in some way enlightened, deprogramming yourself from a previously hell belief or understanding, or made you feel like you actually learned something or realized that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. We don't take any advertising money. We don't take any foundation money. All we get is what you do in your support for us. And in a moment, we'll tell you what we've been up to on Patreon past couple of weeks. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding so far? This week's question from hell is what is Bill Gates going to do with 269,000 acres of U.S. farmland? I've got a great answer to this and I can't wait to tell it on Wednesday. <laughs> great. Um, Stephen S. says Bitcoin server farm. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good answers today. Um, Fabio L. 
uh, betting that other billionaires will be too busy in space while he secures all the food. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let Lanny O build the biggest goddamn whorehouse money can buy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I can say that on, on radio. But... I don't know about radio, but here you can. <laughs> Alex might be bleeping something. Yeah. Um, Adam A, two words. What? That was two words? What the hell do you want from me? A comical answer with an underlying grim reality like your mom? Oh, hey, that was also two words. <laughs> Jesus. Spencer N. says, Hide among the endless cornstalks from reporters rudely asking about his dead best friend, Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> if only Jeff had delivered those decoy Bill Gates clones on time so they could deal with the media's questions while the real Bill hides out with the real Epstein in one of many secret estates. But alas, he must hide instead in the corn somewhere between Idaho and Illinois, hoping he can eventually hop southwards between his properties to that uh, not at all suspicious single acre he owns in New Mexico near Zorro Ranch. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that was long and good. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bradley R., the biggest and worst crop circles the world has ever seen. <laughs> what, what is Bill Gates going to do with 269,000 acres of U.S. farmland? Uh, Braden S. says, bury a billion dollars and produce the It's a Mad, 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 Mad World game show. Sarah M., colonize them. <laughs> um, uh, Chris H., pedophiles like cowboys need a lot of space. Oh, Jesus. Wow. <laughs> That's just implying. Yeah, yeah. Lots of implications. He's a exactly. <laughs> um, Greg, Greg M., remake the movie Motel Hell only on a grander scale, and it's not a movie. <laughs> Any more? Yep, a few more. We got a lot. Um, Aaron B., uh, have sex with hundreds of cows. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, <laughs> uh, just just two more today. Um, Kim G, snatch our bodies, and Egon S says sex farm. <laughs> we will have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from Elle is: What is Bill Gates gonna do with two hundred sixty nine thousand acres of U.S. farmland? Person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. Uh, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support, and you can see all of our swag that is available. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history, and wow, is this one rotten. <sighs> In Rotten History on October 4th, 1920, 101 years ago today, a young white farmer, and the fact that we are pointing out the farmer is white is definitely a sign that this will be truly rotten history. A young white farmer named John Harvey was shot and killed near the town of McLenny, Florida, just a few miles west of Jacksonville. Harvey's suspected killer was an African-American man named Jim Givens, who immediately ran away as local white residents formed armed groups to pursue him. Within hours, the suspected shooter's brother, Ben Givens, was arrested along with Fulton Smith and Ray Field, two other African-American men who also apparently knew the suspect. Though the three men were not accused of any crime the police described to decided to keep them in jail at least until the next day for questioning but about an hour after midnight a mob of some 50 white vigilantes broke into the jail overpowered the sheriff and took his keys 
They seized the three innocent men and took them outside town where they tied them to trees and shot them to death. The next day, another African-American man named Sam Duncan was also found shot dead in the same manner and in the same area. He had no connection to the other men at all, and over the next several days, most black residents fled from the area around McLenny, while the white mobs continued their search for the original suspect, Jim Givens. Whether they ever found him or not is not recorded. So, formerly known as Darbyville, Darbyville, by the time of this rotten history, the city had changed its name to McLenny. Now it's called the city of McClenny, but none of the letters in McClenny is capitalized because the Florida Post Office had a rule against capital letters in the middle of, the, of city names in what one can only assume was some kind of ethnic-based hatred towards people who have capital letters in the middle of their names like McClenny, which is Irish, or if your name was maybe French or Spanish and origination maybe they just don't want those names to be on any of the city towns and I'm, or any of the state's towns and I'm pretty sure that's what Florida was up to also I told you when we found out the farmer was white this was going to be some racist rotten history so I gave you a trigger warning in rotten history October 7th 1916 105 years ago this Thursday it was football as the Cumberland College Bulldogs met the Georgia Tech engineers at Grant Field in Atlanta the game was not supposed to happen Cumberland had discontinued its football program after defeating Georgia Tech 22 to zip the previous year but Georgia Tech had coach John Heisman namesake of the Heisman Trophy awarded annually to college football players most out, college football's most outstanding player he was itching for a rematch, and he pointed out that the two schools had a contract requiring Cumberland to pay Tech the substantial amount of $3,000 in 1916 money if they forfeited their next game. So, to honor the agreement, Cumberland threw together an ad hoc team of law students and assorted frat boys, but they had nothing when it came to football talent, and the game was a historic fiasco. After Cumberland received the opening kickoff, they repeatedly failed to make first downs, fumbled the ball, lost yardage through interceptions and fumbled again they also had no defense and georgia tech scored and scored and scored again leading by 63 to nothing after the first quarter and 123 to nothing at halftime at no point in the game did cumberland make a first down nor did georgia tech ever attempt a forward pass final score 222 to nothing the most lopsided outcome in the history of U.S. college football, and had I been alive in 1916, knowing my recent gambling history, especially over this past weekend, I probably would have taken Cumberland because, come on, they were getting 220 points. How can I lose? Finally, in rotten history, October 9th, 1992, 29 years ago this Saturday, in the small town of Peekskill, New York, about 50 miles north of New York City, 18-year-old Michelle Knapp was at home minding her own business when she heard a loud crashing noise that sounded like a major auto accident. She ran outside to discover that the 1980 Chevy Malibu in her parents' driveway, which she had just purchased from her grandmother for $400, had a huge gash torn out of its crushed right rear trunk lid and quarter panel. She saw no other cars nearby, nor any people or animals who could have done the damage. Then she looked underneath the car and was astonished to see a large oblong rock bigger than a football. It was hot to the touch and gave off a stink of sulfur. 
The rock had come from outer space. People across Kentucky, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania had seen the meteor enter the Earth's atmosphere and described it as a greenish fireball streaking through the night sky. Since it came down on a Friday night in autumn, the traditional time for high school football games in the United States, it was photographed by 16 different people with video camcorders. In the videos, the meteor can be seen breaking into fiery pieces across the sky as high school football players walk around clueless, not even noticing it. When the biggest chunk of the red-hot meteorite slammed into Michelle Knapp's parked Malibu, it just narrowly missed the gas tank. Knapp soon sold the 26-pound space rock to a group of collectors for $50,000 and got another twenty-five grand for the damaged car, which went on display in New York and Paris. In 2012, its original title document and broken rear taillight bulb were sold at auction for $5,000. Meanwhile, pieces of the 4.4 billion-year-old Peekskill meteorite can now be seen in several museums, including the Smithsonian in Washington and the Field Museum here in Chicago. And if there are any meteorites listening to the show right now, there is a tan 2006 Nissan Sentra with almost 120,000 miles on it parked behind my house. And if you happen to slam into it while we're not around, we'll let it slide. No questions asked. That's Rotten History. And this is Hell. Jess, who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we'll be speaking with Stellan Vintagen on his article, The Zod Between Utopian Radicalism and Negotiated Pragmatism for Roar Magazine. That's a fascinating article. Go check out that article again, The Zod Between Utopian Radicalism and Negotiated Pragmatism at Roar Magazine. And do we know who is going to be on Wednesday's show yet? Yes, we do. Um, On Wednesday's show, we'll have on journalist Michael Hudson on the Pandora Papers leak and investigation, plus, in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin identified a heinous example of, of missing white woman syndrome derangement or derangement syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, Mike Hudson. Uh, he is the investigative reporter who has been on the show in the past. We talked to him because the group that he is with, the International Consortium of Internet of Investigative Journalists, uh, they were the ones who broke the Panama Papers, and now they have new papers that reveal how the ultra rich around the world have been hiding their money in tax havens all around the world. How they've been, yeah. Tipping into the till a little bit. So we'll be talking to Mike Hudson about that on Wednesday. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. And if you would like to support our horrible business model that puts people before profits, subscribe to our bonus weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, which streams live at 10 a.m. and is podcast shortly after at the same place. Because this is our first show in two weeks, the one that we're doing right now, here's what happened on our last two Patreon podcasts at patreon.com slash this is hell. Yes, despite being laid up all week, I was still able to write a monologue and drag myself over here a few days ago on Friday. In retrospect, I probably shouldn't have, but I'm stupidly did. So two weeks ago on Patreon, I shared my theory on anti-vaxxers, and it's just a theory. I'll be more than happy to get your feedback on my likely flawed theory that I nonetheless believe could help everyone in understanding the decision to not get vaxxed. This does not mean I oppose getting vaccinated. I've already been vaccinated twice. I got shot up on the first day it was available to me. 
But of late, guests on the show have described the failures of liberalism, the power of human relations, the transformation we go through under neoliberalism, and the financialization of everything. After hearing from them, it would seem to follow that holding each and every person who has not been vaccinated personally and individually accountable, attributing their choice to some inherent flaw in their character or their intelligence from a condescending and elitist perch, that may not be the best way to determine the roots of anti-vax beliefs. Maybe there's something bigger at play here, something more systemic. Maybe it's because, I don't know, what Max Haven describes in his book, Revenge Capitalism, which we discussed with Max a couple of weeks ago. Max writes, we all exist in a system that sustains itself and its cruelties by seeking to transform each and every one of us into a replaceable competitive agent of its reproduction. So maybe that's what it is. We also shared a 2008 interview with Ken Menkhaus, a former advisor to the UN program in Somalia, who had just published a report with the Enough Project titled Somalia, a country in peril, a policy nightmare. In that discussion, Ken accurately lays out exactly how U.S. actions in Somalia would only fuel terrorism and continue violence moving into the foreseeable future, and it continues to this day. Meanwhile, on the most recent Patreon podcast, the war on Christmas is cliche and boring, so instead I'd took it to birthdays, which I argued are the most selfish, individualized, and neoliberal of all holidays. No wonder they're so important on social media platforms like Facebook. Birthdays not only celebrate the individual, but birthdays are perfect for crafting algorithms. As I said this past Friday on Patreon, your birthday is like the wallet address of your personal crypto coin. As my birthday was this weekend, yesterday actually, on Friday we also shared an interview that is from the only episode of This Is Hell over the past 25 years that I hosted on air during my birthday. That conversation from October 3rd, 2009 was with David Cole, who talked about his then-just-published book, The Torture Memos, rationalizing the unthinkable. At the heart of David's work were the Office of Legal Counsel's documents that had been used to legally justify the Bush administration's torture program, documents that had recently been released. Back then, David was a law prof at Georgetown, a Center for Constitutional Rights volunteer staff attorney and legal affairs correspondent at The Nation. Today, David is the National Legal Director of the American Civil Liberties Union. But you can only hear my working theory on anti-vax as well as my declaration of war on birthdays and our 2009 or 2008 interview with Ken Mankhouse accurately predicting what U.S. involvement in Somalia would lead to and our 2009 conversation with David Cole on the Bush administration's torture memos by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell if you do become a subscriber on patreon not only do you get our weekly patreon podcast with a new monologue for me plus a classic interview from our archives that is not currently available anywhere else online you also get a secret code which gives you five dollars off each and every piece of this is hell merchandise including our trucker's cap winter beanie steel coffee mug face masks tote bag t-shirts and the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive with dozens of interviews from the first 20 years of the 2000s subscribe at patreon.com and start listening to this exclusive content today again that's patreon.com slash this is hell thanks to our guests today sylvia k author and hamza hamushen editor of the transnational institute report towards a just recovery from the covid19 crisis thanks to jess lipka for running the board thanks to alexander jerry for producing and ronaldo magaldi for rotten history and this week's hangover cure is possibly maybe i don't know something called the hangover stack we told you so this is hell my demon is on my butt no. ah. my demon talks to me a profanity like a seller 
And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>